at all levels, being virtual. Lots of uncertainty in the economic world with jobs and businesses, and yet the stock market is booming. Everybody running around with masks on. I see a lot of them right now. And we hear grave statistics every day, and yes, the pun was intended. Yet many question the authenticity of the numbers. Some are thanking God for giving us vaccines and can't wait to get one. Others are very wary of the safety of the vaccines and have no plans to get one and worry about whether or not it will be mandated by the government. We have endured, somehow, another presidential election, with one side claiming victory by a landslide, while the other side claiming that they lost only because of fraud. Racism has again become a front-burner issue. Unless you're very young, you remember other times in our history when it has been a hot-button issue as well, and all of a sudden it's right there again on the front-burner. Protests often overflowing in the streets with mayhem in Waukegan and most especially in Kenosha, in our backyard. Fear of what lies ahead. Will the nation slide into socialism? What a year we have had. And we've had personal struggles as well. We have graduated, haven't we, Monica? But not been able to have parties and celebrations. We've gotten married, but had to downsize our special days. We've had our share of losses of loved ones this year. We've had surgeries and cancer treatments. We've had had to isolate ourselves because we have a sniffle. We feel a sore throat, so we better stay home. What a year we have had. And now we're coming out of the Christmas season. We were reminded throughout the Advent season, um, I certainly reminded us a lot during that season, that Jesus was not coming into a world that was quaint and comfortable. He was deliberately coming into a world that is broken. And he knew it was broken. And that's why he came. We have rightly reminded ourselves of why it was that Jesus would do that, why he would come. He was coming into a world that was rife with sin and death, with injustices and inequalities. He was coming to give hope to those who are oppressed. God has seen, he has heard our yearnings, and he has visited us. If you remember back to some of those songs we preached on from Zechariah and Mary. He was coming to give hope to us who know that we are as guilty as the next guy. We have all sinned and fallen short of the kingdom of God. And he was coming to enable us to serve him without fear. As we come out of the Christmas season and find ourselves standing at the edge of a brand new year, a year yet unopened, the year 2021, what would... God say to us? And that's a question I ask every year, right about this time, because I finished with the Advent Christmas-type sermons, don't want to quite get right back into what we hadn't finished before Advent, and I sit back and say, what is it that God would say to us? 
what do, what do God's people most need to hear at this present time? I can think of all kinds of things to say. I mean, let's face it, I could go back in the file and pull out any number of New Year's sermons. And you know, I glance at them. But it seems like whenever I do that, I never find anything that I think is timely, never really perfect, never really right. I can think of all kinds of things to say, and they'd all be right, they'd all be true, they'd all be biblical. However, I think there is one specific thing that we need to most hear right now as we look at 2020 in our rearview mirror and face an unopened 2021 before us. And I've chosen as a text this morning, which relates to what I'm just feeling so much that we need to hear, Isaiah chapter 43, the verse, first seven verses. You can turn there or just watch it on the, the screen. Isaiah 43, starting at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes. And honored, and I love you. I give men in exchange for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Pretty bad when the pastor can't find a book in the Bible, isn't it? Not that I need it yet, but I want to have it in front of me. So what do you think it is that I think we most need to hear today? It's a simple phrase, you are mine. From God's heart to us, you are mine. And who was this spoken to? We have to look back at chapter 42 to find out. And I'll kind of glance at that in a minute. It was spoken to God's chosen people, the Jews, they were chosen and yet rebelled. They should have seen. They should have understood, but they were blind and deaf. There was no one who was crying out to God saying, help us, restore. And the more they forsook the law of the Lord, the more glorious and beautiful he made his law appear, even though they were in opposition to it. 
And God gave them over to the looter. He gave them over to the plunderer. He poured out his anger upon them. But that was not the end of the story. If I can just read a little bit of chapter 42, the previous chapter. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and in whose law they, whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. That's the very end of chapter 42. But look at how chapter 43 begins. We turn the page and it starts off, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Whatever fear and apprehension we might have today, God wants us to see, spelled out in vivid technicolor, you are mine. You are mine. Let those words echo in your heart. Let Hear Jesus looking you in the eye today and saying, you are mine. With whatever has gone before in your life, whatever memories you have, whatever junk, whatever stuff, whatever conflicts, whatever, you know, we all have it. Hear Jesus saying to you this morning, you are mine. I believe that this is what the Lord would say to us at this point in our history. We are not blobs of tissue. We're not random clumps of molecules that somehow have randomly come together. We are not accidents, even if our parents were not married. We are not disgusting and revolting to God. We have not been forgotten by Him or pushed off to the side. He has not wiped His hands of us. God knows us by name, and we are his. And this, my friends, is a prevalent truth throughout the scriptures. Psalm 139, God knows us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows our coming in and our going out. He knows exactly where we are at every moment of every day. And he even knows our thoughts. He has appointed, the scripture tells us in, in the book of Acts, the exact times and places where we should live. I just celebrated a birthday almost two weeks ago. 
I was born, I keep track of these things, at 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, December 16, 1954. God planned that. He planned the moment that I would come into the world. He planned the moment that you would come into the world. This is far more than the Find My iPhone app that some of us have on our phones. I have Find My iPhone loaded onto my phone. I can keep track of my wife. If I'm not sure where she is, I sometimes will you know, go to the app and look it up and say, well, she's at church. Well, she's at Meyer in Kenosha, or I think she's at Nathan's house. And sometimes I will do that. But you know what? It doesn't tell me for sure where she is. Sometimes Beth leaves her phone at home. And I think, well, I don't think she's home, but it says she's at home, but she's not. Somebody could have stolen the phone. They could have it at Meyer in Kenosha. And that app doesn't tell me if Beth's in a good mood or a bad mood, or if she's awake or asleep. And yet God's knowledge of us is all-encompassing, knowing everything about, knowing more about us than we know about ourselves. This is far more than the government knowing our social security number and having a list of addresses where we have lived. God has. This is what the scripture says. He has inscribed us upon his hand. He knows everything about us because we are his. A few weeks ago, we were having dinner with our oldest son, Nathan, and his wife, Oksana, and their kids, and somehow we got onto the discussion of wedding rings. One of my most precious possessions is my father's wedding ring. Um, he wore it the whole time he was married until the day before he died when he just lost so much weight, it simply fell off unbeknownst to him, and my sister picked it up, and I ultimately ended up with it. And inside my father's wedding ring is inscribed, no, I can't say that without, no, no, I can't. It says, I love you, along with the date of my parents' wedding. Nathan told us that night that inside of his wedding ring, he has inscribed simply Oksana, along with their wedding date. In case you're wondering, mine, by the way, is lovingly inscribed only with the the words, 14K. I don't know who that is. <laughs> so listen now to these words from Isaiah chapter 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The Lord has inscribed your name. Think, think about this. This is profound. This is true. He has your name. Not in a file somewhere, not in a computer file somewhere, not in an address book, but inscribed on his palm. He has your name. Isn't that an incredible thought? Don't you need to hear that today? I know I do. Just like a spouse might put the name of their sweetheart inside their wedding ring, we are right there. 
We're not distant to God. We're not forgotten by Him. We're not irrelevant. We're not insignificant. God doesn't look at us as just part of the whole human race. He doesn't look at us collectively. He looks at us individually and says, I have you inscribed on the palm of my hand. And I believe he wants us to know that as we turn the page from the year of 2020 and open up the new year that lies before us. Therefore, do not fear. Anxiety just might be knocking at our door. Don't let it in. Fear may be looking in our windows. Don't crack the window and give entrance to it. People may tell us, as they've told me in the last number of months, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. They're afraid, and they want us to be afraid. Don't let fear come in. Why would we be afraid? We are his. Our name is on the palm of his hand. Back to our text, verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He never says that we won't pass through the floodwaters. He never says you will never find yourself walking through fire. But he says that he will be with us through it. And the Lord never, thankfully, exhausts his ability to deliver and to keep us from being destroyed by the raging floods and the burning fires. So my dearest friends, as we enter a new year, don't let it be filled with worry. Don't give way to worry. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Remember, this is still Jesus talking. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not you are of more value than many sparrows. So what Jesus is saying there, very succinctly, is if you want to fear something, fear God. And you ought to fear God. I ought to fear God. Don't fear the one who can persecute you, who can take away your physical life. It says after they've killed you, there's nothing more they can do. Reminds me of Polycarp. Remember, I've told you about him before when he was burned because he would not renounce Christ. One point he says, I think I'm done on that side. Would you turn me over? He knew they could take away his life, but they could never take away his name being inscribed on the hand of God. Fear the one who has authority to throw into hell. That's not Satan, that's God. Fear the one who has the keys to heaven and hell. That's the one we ought to fear, not anything or anyone else, not even the demons of hell. Fear God. God says that sparrows are cheap. Jesus said they're a dime a dozen. 
You can buy a couple for, for a penny. And yet, as cheap as a sparrow is, Jesus is making the point that they're not even forgotten by your father. But he even sees the tiny little worthless sparrow that doesn't have any monetary value. And if God cares about the tiny sparrow with no worth, he's saying, how much more do you think he cares about you? All of our hairs are numbered, and we are worth more than many sparrows. So we are very, very, very secure in him. Our position in Christ is very, very secure. That means our salvation is very secure. He has chosen us, as text says in Isaiah 43, over others. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And most especially, in a sense, he has, just a sense now, but he has chosen us over his very own son, allowing his son to die on our behalf. Think about that. That he's valued us that much that he would let his son die. If any of you had kids, you know you can't even think about intentionally allowing one of your children to die for another. You and I love our kids way too much. We love our grandkids way too much. And yet God gives, gave his son in exchange for us so that we could be reconciled to him. What does this mean? It means that God will move history for the sake of his people. In the same way that the whole history of the country of Egypt was moved by God's delivering the Israelites from slavery in that land. And even today, never stop, God will move history in order to redeem those who are being saved. Those that are yet to be saved. He will adjust history and move history with the intention of having each one that is to be saved should be redeemed. Everyone, verse 7, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made, we are created for his glory. Don't ever forget that you exist for his glory. To live for any other purpose is to be an idolater. As a scripture in the book of Hebrews that um, probably isn't often read, maybe because it, it's a little bit scary, but I'm going to read it this morning. I remember first running across this when I was in a Bible school out in California a long time ago. Uh, this is from Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what it says. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a scary passage because God is saying that once more he will shake the heavens and the earth. That means much more than COVID-19. We can expect at some point in the future much greater shakings of the earth and the heavens. And I find myself wondering if 
if COVID-19 is just simply a, a little dry run for believers, a little practice run for Christians to get us a little more ready for what is coming down the pike. Be prepared for much more shaking. It is coming. God's word says it's coming. I'm not, you know, I'm not making this up. It says it's coming. So it is coming. Be prepared for it, but do not fear when it comes. God is only shaking, that's what the text we just read says, that which is temporary, that which cannot remain anyway. Because when he shakes it and it's destroyed, it reveals how absolutely temporary all that is. The only thing that can hold up when he shakes is his kingdom. And that kingdom can never be shaken. Everything else in the created universe can be destroyed and will be destroyed by God shaking. But the kingdom of God will not be shaken. You won't see the books falling off the bookcases in the kingdom of God when the Lord shakes the heavens and the earth one last final time. Let's not fear and let's not give way to anxiety. If we have confessed our sins to God and approached him through his son Jesus, our name is written on his palm. Our name is written in the inside of his wedding band. In the Bible, we are described, we who have put our faith in Christ as our Savior, we are described as the bride of Christ, as the wife of the Lamb of God. He is the bridegroom. And so I'm not out of line when I say we're written inside his wedding ring. We're inscribed inside his ring because we are his sweetheart. His church on earth is his sweetheart. He gave his son in order that he could have a reconciled sweetheart. There will one day be, and again, I don't make this stuff up. It's in the scripture. But it's unfamiliar to a lot of us, which is why I like to keep emphasizing this is in the Bible. It's not some idea I've come up with. But there will one day be a great marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, which will put any earthly marriage celebration to shame. So whatever big event you've been to where they pulled out all the stops and spent a lot of money and it was amazing, it'll be nothing compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb one day when we are gathered as the saints who have been redeemed and we have the, the, the marriage feast with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me read from Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, to John, who was writing this down, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So again, do not fear. And if you are saved today, hear him saying to you, you are mine. And if you're not saved today, make today the day of salvation for you. Make today the day when you confess to him your sins and you humble yourself before him. You allow yourself to be broken before him, crying out to him, oh Lord, save me, forgive me, holding back nothing, hiding nothing, becoming just as you are, because he will receive you. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. There's none that he has foreordained that he wants them to be lost for eternity. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. Thessalonians tells us the reason why the second coming of Christ is delayed is not because the Lord is slow to get around to keeping his promises, but because he's not willing that any should perish. And there's still some yet to come, still some yet to receive and accept their invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb as the very bride of Christ. Amen. Now may God be above you to bless you, beneath you to uphold you, around you to protect you, within you to sanctify you, and before you to guide you. May Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you this day and throughout all of eternity. Amen.